Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 6. The extraordinary Gospel according to Mark, chapter 6. Our attention this morning will be devoted to verses 45 through 52. I now have the privilege to read those verses aloud to us. And as I read aloud, let us all be leaning forward in our souls, full of expectation that God will kindly address us this morning through the reading and the proclamation of his word. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It has become my favorite book about sports. After I finished reading this book, I so enjoyed this book that I began to read it again. I'm saying that it is that good. Its title, The Boys in the Boat. Subtitle, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. I'm going to let author Daniel James Brown describe the origin of this book for you. He writes, This book was born on a cold, drizzly, late spring day when I clambered over the split-rail cedar fence that surrounds my pasture and made my way through wet woods to the modest frame house where Joe Rance lay dying. I knew only two things about Joe when I knocked on his daughter Judy's door that day. I knew that in his mid-70s, he had single-handedly hauled a number of cedar logs down a mountain, then hand-split the rails and cut the post and installed all 2,224 linear feet of the pasture fence I had just climbed over, a task so Herculean I shake my head in wonderment whenever I think about it. 
And I knew that he had been one of nine young men from the state of Washington, farm boys, fishermen, and loggers, who shocked both the rowing world and Adolf Hitler by winning the gold medal in eight-oared rowing at the 1936 Olympics. Uh, Mr. Brown goes on to eloquently and effectively tell their story. Actually, it was so well written that even though I knew they won the gold medal, I was still nervous at the end that they wouldn't win the gold medal. And, and this book not only describes this unique and compelling story, the book introduces those like myself who are largely ignorant about the sport of rowing to the rigors of rowing. So, so listen as Mr. Brown describes what's required in rowing. He writes, Competitive rowing is an undertaking of extraordinary beauty preceded by brutal punishment. Unlike most sports which draw primarily on particular muscle groups, rowing makes heavy and repeated use of every muscle in the body. And rowing makes these muscular demands not at odd intervals, but in rapid sequence over a protracted period of time, repeatedly and without respite. Physiologists, in, half, in, in fact, have calculated that rowing a 2,000-meter race, which is the Olympic standard, takes the same physiological toll as playing two basketball games back-to-back, and it exacts that toll in about six minutes. The common denominator, whether in the lungs, the muscles, or the bones, the common denominator is overwhelming pain. Rowing is perhaps the toughest of sports. The disciples, the 12 disciples, were the original boys in the boat. They they are the canonized version. Their their experience of rowing in Mark chapter 6 is part of redemptive history. Though, Though they weren't aware of it that evening as they hurriedly embarked from shore at the Savior's command, this This experience on this evening was an intentional part of their training and preparation for apostolic ministry. On on this evening, they would be reminded, they would be reminded of the unique pain of rowing. The unique pain of rowing, not from competition, but for the purpose of survival. And they, they would never forget their encounter with the Son of God this particular evening as they attempted to row across the Sea of Galilee. And this, this all happened so that we might encounter the Son of God this morning. All because of what took place with these boys in this boat. Simple outline for you this morning. The setting... First, then the crisis, concluding with the compassion. First, the setting, verses 45 and 46. One must not read verse 45 divorced from the previous story in verses 30 through 44, the miracle of Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fish. And actually, one cannot understand verse 45 apart from understanding the preceding creative miracle. We read in verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. Why? Why, like, why immediately? Why did he make the disciples get into the boat immediately? And why did he make 
the disciples get into the boat? And why didn't he go with him? Why, why the apparent rush here in this passage? Well, the urgency suggests a concern or a crisis of some kind. And Mark doesn't explain, but actually John helps us to understand in his parallel account of this event. In John's Gospel, John informs us of the following. He informs us of the following just after the miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fish takes place. John writes the following. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him Jesus, by force, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So here's what's going down here. After this creative miracle in verses 30 through 44, the creative miracle, the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, Jesus perceives, he perceives that there was a most concerning messianic excitement and fervor in the air. There is a revolutionary ground swell taking place. The crowds, rent, uh, the crowds numbering here, some 5,000 men and no doubt thousands more women and children, they wanted to make him king. And they wanted to make him king right then and right there. And they wanted right then and right there a political and military revolution in opposition to Roman rule. And they had determined that Jesus was the one to lead them. This, however, was not the purpose for which he came. No, no, no. He, he came as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. No, he, he was making his way to a hill called Calvary. And he did not want his disciples influenced by this contagious atmosphere because at this point, his disciples were clueless about his mission. So, so he knew that the 12 would have been quite enthusiastic about this proposal and supportive of this action. So, so he acts immediately and decisively to separate his disciples from this crowd and this scene, lest they get caught up in this messianic fervor of the multitude. He makes them get into the boat and sail across the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, if I were one of the disciples, <laughs> I would not have been good to go with this. I would not have been good to go with this because in chapter 4, if you remember, they encountered a life-threatening storm where they feared for their lives. And he stilled that storm with a word. So if I was one of the disciples in this moment, I would not have been good to go with this. I would not have been good to go. I would have made an appeal that it's only chapter 6. And this is too close to chapter 4. And why aren't you getting into this boat with us? So I would have had some questions. I would have had a certain protest. But he made them get into the boat and go sail to the other side. And then notice in verse 45, he dismisses the crowd. Oh my, my. Listen, dismissing this crowd would be no easy task, particularly given their heightened level of excitement and intent. I, I would have loved to have been present to observe the Son of God's skillful display of leadership in dismissing and dispersing this crowd given their intent to make Him 
king. And then he withdraws to the hills to pray. That's the setting, and that brings us to the crisis in verses 47 through 50. The crisis. As the disciples attempt to proceed to their destination, they they encounter a strong headwind. There's there's a storm that is impeding their progress. It's not not a life-threatening storm. It's not not similar to the one they experienced in chapter 4. But but the wind is formidable, and, and their progress is minimal, and the rowing was indeed painful. The NIV reads here that they were straining at the oars. And this straining goes on for hours. Now Mark informs us that Jesus saw them in their distress in verse 48. And eventually he makes his way to them during the fourth watch of the night, which would be between 3 and 6 a.m. So once again, yet again, Jesus is moved with compassion toward his disciples. And this moment and this event are a part of his intentional training of the twelve. So he comes to them, walking on the water to them. And this miracle is without doubt the centerpiece of this story. Jesus is always the centerpiece of the story. He comes to them walking on the water to them. And then we read this strange Strange reference in verse 48. He meant to pass by them. What, what, what's up with that? What, what, whatever could that mean? I mean, sh- surely he's come to help them and not walk by them. Are, are we to understand that his intent was simply to, to walk by and, and not to help? No, no. He had, he had no intention of passing by them. He had every intention of helping them. Actually, this, this phrase, he meant to pass by them, it, it, captures, it captures and informs us about the significance of what's going down here. This phrase actually assumes a familiarity with the Old Testament. It's actually an echo from the Old Testament. Th- this phrase is informed by its usage in the Old Testament, and it arrives in this account with all the force of its usage in the Old Testament, signifying the revelation of God himself. This commentary, Donald English, remarks that one remarkable miracle, referencing the multiplication of the loaves and fish, is followed by an even more outstanding one. So this phrase, he meant to pass by them, it is a deliberate identification with how God had revealed himself in the Old Testament. Mark Mark is informing us here, alerting us to this reality, that this miracle is a manifestation of the transcendent Lord who will pass by the disciples just as God passed by Moses in Exodus 33. Listen as I refresh your memories as to that experience in Exodus chapter 33 where we read Moses appealing to the Lord, please show me your glory. And the Lord says to him, I I will, I will make all my goodness pass before you and you, you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you you cannot see my face 
for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there, there is a place by me. There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Jesus meant to pass by them. He meant to reveal Himself to them as God the Son. He meant to reveal the glory of God to them. By coming to them walking on the sea, by coming to them in this way, Jesus is doing something that only God can do. Only God walks on the sea. Psalmist informs us of this in Psalm 77 and in the book of Job, chapter 9. Job describes the transcendence of God with these words Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. So, what's going down here is an act. It is an act of divine self revelation. Jesus is doing what only God can do. He is displaying the glory of God to his disciples. And he is doing so uniquely. Uniquely. For when the Lord passed by Moses, he could only see his back and still live. No, no. This passing by would be unique, for he was meant to be seen and he meant for them to see his face, not simply his back. He meant for them to behold his glory. David Garland writes in his commentary, Jesus walking on the water to his disciples is a revelation of the glory that he shares with the Father. Jesus is not pulling off a staggering visual stunt to amaze his friends. Rather, the miracle attests that God himself has visited us in the flesh. Oh yes, no, no. He meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them because he meant to identify himself with how God had revealed himself in the Old Testament. He meant to display the glory of God to his disciples. And the disciples don't just see God's back. They see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The previous storm in chapter 4 drew our attention to the authority of his word. He stilled it with a word. This storm actually draws our attention to his person as he does what only God can do. And he walks on the water. Yet notice the reaction of the disciples to this sight. Verse 50. They were terrified. They were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they were terrified. And that brings us to point three, which is the compassion. The compassion. Verses 50 through 52. One, one thing you cannot miss, one thing, oh, one thing we must not miss in the midst of this extraordinary miracle is Jesus' care for the disciples. They were terrified but then notice in verse 50 they were terrified but immediately he spoke to them they were terrified but immediately he spoke to them and said take heart take heart 
Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then verse 51, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Behold his compassion for them. Actually, his compassion for them is evident from the outset. In verse 48, we read, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. He saw that they were making headway painfully. They were never out of his sight. Though, though they couldn't see him, he never lost sight of them. They were never out of his sight. And then in verse 48, he comes to them in their distress. He reveals the glory of God to them. And then when they are terrified, he immediately comforts them. Then he gets into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Brothers and sisters, this is no imaginary superhero. This is the Son of God. This is the Son of God walking on the sea He created. This is the Son of God with authority over the wind. The wind recognizes the Son of God and ceases when He gets into the boat. And this is the Son of God filled with compassion for His disciples. This is just a wonderful picture of His care for them and His care for us in our storms is no different. He saw them. They they were never out of His sight. And we are never out of sight his sight. He prayed for them. Scripture informs us that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He came to them and he has come to us through the proclamation of the gospel and he continues to come to us primarily through his word and through the means of preaching and through the church that he has built here. He comforted them and he comforts us in the midst of our storms as well. Listen as J.C. Ryle describes really the relevance of this scene for us. Mr. Ryle writes, there are thoughts here of comfort for all true believers. Yes, there are. There are thoughts here of comfort for all true believers. Wherever they may be or whatsoever their circumstances, the Lord Jesus sees them. The same eye which saw the disciples tossed on the lake is ever looking at us. We are never beyond the reach of his care. Our way is never hid from him. He may not come to our aid at the time we like best, but he will never allow us to utterly fail. He that walked upon the water never changes. He will always come at the right time to uphold his people. Though he tarry, let us wait patiently. Jesus sees us and will not forsake us. So let me ask you a question this morning. Where might you be feeling a strong headwind in your life this morning? Where do you feel a strong opposing wind as you attempt by the grace of God to continue to row in righteousness? Surely, surely there are some present 
who are weary. You, you are weary of rowing. You row and you appear to make little progress. It's dark and you cannot perceive his care and purpose. The headwind is strong. Therefore, you do not perceive you are making progress. And in the midst of it all, you wonder, does he see and does he care? So what strong headwind might you be encountering this morning? Chronic illness? Perhaps a child with a disability? Perhaps a wayward teenage son? Perhaps there's a strong financial headwind you are feeling. Recently you were blindsided and informed you are being laid off. Perhaps you know fresh opposition to the gospel in the context of your family or workplace or as a student. Perhaps you've been betrayed by a friend. Perhaps your spouse has left you. Perhaps, perhaps it's just a prolonged season of spiritual dryness. Or, or perhaps... You are a mother of multiple small children and therefore storms await you in some form each and every day. A strong headwind is wherever your hope has been deferred and as a result your heart is sick and you are weary, you are weary of rowing. Well, Mr. Ryle would say to all of us this morning that there are thoughts here of comfort for you. Yes, there are. Here are those thoughts. He sees. He cares. He prays. He will come. He will comfort he will come. And J.C. Ryle is wise to remind us <laughs> that he may not come to our aid at the time we like best. Listen, the Lord's timing here should be instructive to us. He came about the fourth watch. That would be 3 to 6 a.m. of the night. These guys had been rowing for hours. They had been rowing for hours. The rowing was painful. There was a strong headwind impeding their process, their progress, and he was watching them for hours. They were rowing for hours, and he was watching them for hours. Listen, it would appear, it would appear that Jesus let them experience the extremity of their need to the max. And so often, our experience is no different. Listen, you will discover, if you haven't already discovered, that God is often the God of the fourth watch. 
He, he, just, he just specializes in arriving during the fourth watch. So if you find yourself this morning rowing and it is wearying and you feel like you are making little or no progress, if you find yourself this morning both weary and exhausted, wondering if he sees, wondering if he cares, wondering if he will ever come, and wondering if you will ever be comforted, let the wise words of Charles Spurgeon strengthen your heart as you row this morning. Mr. Spurgeon would say to us this morning, Oh, for the grace to feel that if we do not know when God will deliver us, then it is none of our business. If God knows, that is enough. We are to follow Him, not lead. We are to obey Him, not prescribe. Your deliverance is near, but if it tarried, it will be a richer blessing. So my friend, could I just encourage you this morning? Keep rowing. Keep rowing by the grace of God. Keep rowing. Because your deliverance is near. And if it tarries, then it will only be a richer blessing. And if you feel like you are at the extremity of your need, oh my, understand this. He specializes. He specializes in arriving during the fourth watch. And he specializes in revealing himself to us in the midst of our storms. These are his specialties. So, keep rowing. Keep rowing. And actually, unlike the disciples, row, row in faith doesn't appear they were rowing in faith because they, they were not expecting him to come. And they were terrified when he arrived. They were terrified when they should have trusted. And you notice that Jesus, Jesus clearly expected them to trust him. They, they, he expected them to perceive who he was. He expected them to respond appropriately to him. Now, Mark informs us that they were terrified and they were astounded, but they did not trust him. They didn't. And Mark describes why in verse 52. For there we read, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, they they were present for the preceding miracle. They were present for the previous miracle of the multiplications of the loaves and the fish, but they failed to comprehend the purpose of this miracle. They failed to comprehend that the purpose of that miracle was to point beyond itself and to reveal the identity of the one performing the miracle. So they they certainly marveled at the miracle of the loaves, but they missed the point. They missed the point of the miracle because the miracle of multiplication, that creative miracle revealed the identity of the miracle worker. The identity of God the Son. And that miracle was a part of their training. That miracle, the preceding miracle, was actually preparatory for this storm. So if they had understood the point and purpose of the miracle of the loaves and the fish, then they would have responded differently as they rode, and they would have responded differently as he walked on the water toward them in this storm. He revealed himself to them in the miracle of the loaves so that their faith would be strengthened for this storm and the test that awaited them in the future. 
And so this, this forms a, a wonderful challenge to us to grow in our faith. Listen, your previous knowledge of and experience of the greatness and the graciousness and the faithfulness of God on its fullest display on a hill called Calvary, your previous experience, your historic experience of the greatness and the graciousness of God is to prepare you for future storms so that you will trust Him in the midst of those storms. The the Lord expected them to grow in their trust of Him, and He expects us to grow similarly in our trust of Him this morning. Listen, everyone present this morning finds themselves either in the midst of a storm where the wind and the waves make rowing painful and exhausting, or if you're not presently in the midst of the storm, listen, If you're not presently in the midst of the storm, at some point you are going to notice dark clouds forming on the horizon of your life. At some point on some day, you're going to feel a strong headwind pick up in your face. And the Lord expects us to trust Him in the midst of the storm. Why? Because He has proven Himself trustworthy. He has proven Himself trustworthy. He is the sovereign God who reveals Himself to us and especially reveals Himself to us in our storms. So He does expect us to trust Him for He is trustworthy And yet in this story, we also perceive, oh my, we also perceive the patience of God. We perceive the patience of God as Jesus perseveres with the disciples, even though once again and yet again, they don't get it. Even though once again and yet again, they have failed to trust him. Notice that he does not scold them. He does not scold them. He does not say to them, what's it going to take for you dopes to trust me? no words bearing any resemblance to those. In both tone and content, his patience and his mercy are on full display here. He doesn't scold them and then notice sweet words in verse 53. The mercy of God is revealed in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at the Gennesaret and they moored to the shore And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Why are those words so rich in mercy? Because despite the failure of the disciples to trust him yet again, he is patient with them and the mission goes on. The mission continues. I tell you that the failure of the disciples throughout the Gospels serves my soul. (laughs) It serves my soul. Their failure serves my soul. It gives me hope. Though I repeatedly fail to trust Him, He graciously forgives me and in my weakness He continues to sanctify me and by His grace He continues to deploy me in His 
service. What a Savior. They had reason to trust Him. They had an immediate reason to trust Him in the form of the miracle, the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. They, they had reason to trust Him in the midst of the storm. And brothers and sisters, we have, we have even more reason to trust Him in the midst of our storms because, because we have a clearer demonstration of His love than either the multiplication of the loaves and fish or His walking on the water because we have the cross. And Mark draws our attention to the cross in this story. You might have missed his reference to it. It's actually embedded in verse 46 where we read, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Listen, very, very, very important that, that we know that Mark is very intentional in the structure of his gospel. And he's very purposeful and strategic in his references to Jesus withdrawing to pray. Very strategic. There are only three times in Mark's gospel where he informs us that Jesus withdrew to pray. Now don't misunderstand. This, this would not be the only times he withdrew to pray. But these were strategic times of prayer, which is why Mark draws our attention to them. So there's only three times in Mark's gospel we're informed that Jesus withdrew to pray. The first one is in chapter one. It's at the outset of his ministry. It's when his fame began to spread because of his words and his works. Mark informs us that at the outset, he, at a strategic time, withdrew to pray. The second time is here in Mark chapter six. And this would be at the height of his popularity. At the height of his popularity among the crowds and with the multitudes, he again withdraws to pray. There'd be a third and final time Mark draws our attention to Jesus withdrawing to pray, and that would be in Mark 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to his arrest and crucifixion. So note this, in each account, at each time, he withdrew to pray. It was a moment of crisis. It was a moment of crisis for Jesus, and so he withdrew to pray for a purpose because in each case, there was either a popular enthusiasm that was building among the crowds for him to fulfill their popular, not theologically informed, their popular messianic expectations, or he was confronting his impending suffering. So, so the three times are either moments of heightened popularity, which involved a temptation for him to avoid the cross, or it was when the cross was indeed impending and he was looking into the cup of God's wrath that he would experience as he hung between heaven and earth on all Three of those occasions, he withdrew to prayer. Because in each of those occasions, there was a temptation to avoid suffering. There was a temptation to avoid the cross. And so by withdrawing in prayer, he is freshly depending upon the Father. He is being freshly strengthened by the Father. And he is freshly affirming his obedience to the Father. 
He has come not to be a freedom fighter in opposition to Rome. No, no. He has come. He has come to make his way to a hill called Calvary. He's come to make his way to a hill called Calvary where he would give his life as a ransom for many, being the one who bears in his body our sins and absorbs God's righteous and furious wrath against our sins. That's why He has come. And so this is a strategic time of prayer for Him to freshly, in, to just freshly affirm the purpose for which He came. He came. He came to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. So when we read here that he withdrew to pray at this strategic moment, realize that revealed here and embedded in here is a statement of his love for sinners like you and me. He withdrew to pray. be strengthened for the purpose for which he came. The purpose was not to respond to a popular uprising in opposition to Roman oppression. No, he came for a much more serious purpose to become the sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing, suffering servant who would die as our substitute for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God against our sins and securing the forgiveness of our sins. Aren't you glad he withdrew to pray? So how do I know he's going to be with me in my storm? We know he'll be with us in our storm because he withdrew to pray. You see, the storm he would still in the immediate moment here, that was not the storm he came to still ultimately. And there's another storm he had in view. It was the storm of God's wrath against our sin. That, that was the storm ultimately He came to still. He would endure a storm like no other storm, the storm of God's righteous wrath against our sin. He would endure this storm in our place as our substitute so that we might be forgiven of all our sins, so that we might be freed from fear of future wrath and so that we might be assured as we row this morning that He sees, He cares, He is praying, He will come, He will comfort, He will calm so that we can sing with the hymn writer John Newton, with Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Let's pray.
Well, Father, I have no doubt that I am among weary fellow rowers. Lord, we have arrived here this morning to differing degrees, all feeling a strong headwind that impedes our progress. We all arrive feeling to differing degrees like it's dark, wondering, do you see? Do you care? Will you come? Will you comfort? Will you calm? But I pray that the experience of the disciples, the original boys in the boat, I, I pray that their experience would be a fresh comfort to us and strengthen our faith in the midst of our rowing, whatever the storm. And most importantly, I pray that the Savior's strategic withdrawal to pray at this time to avoid the temptation of a popular insurrection for the purpose of making his way to a hill called Calvary so that he might die in our place as our substitute. Lord, I pray that the comfort of Calvary would draw near and enter the hearts of every person present here this morning so that we all leave here, Lord, freshly strengthened to keep rowing, assured of your love by this display of your love on the cross and full of expectation that you see and you care and you're praying And at the right time, you'll come, and you'll come, and you'll deliver. So may our rowing now be filled with expectation, and may our facial expression be one of a confident smile, because we perceive you in your greatness, and your graciousness, and your goodness, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.